This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. Lots to talk about. Of course, the big news nationally and internationally is the uh, indictment of former President Donald Trump. He has a 37-count federal felony indictment for a range of uh, misdeeds, including keeping classified information, which was illegal, lying about having the classified information, and then obstructing uh, the investigation to find out what happened to the classified information, so obstruction of justice. This is um, a historical event for the United States that a former president has been indicted on these felony accounts. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the political implications of that. The second uh, big issue, which is kind of flying below the radar, uh, but it's a big deal in terms of uh, our work and our coverage, is the uh, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which has been accepted, a 60-page definition, which has been accepted by the Biden definition, which is truly kind of an outrageous definition because it... uh, falsely equates uh, criticism of the apartheid state of Israel with anti-Semitism. It's this topic that we've been talking about for quite some time. And it seems like the Biden administration, Jamal, wants to, again, walk both sides. They accepted it, but also gave a number of caveats. And then, Jamal, uh, kind of one of our main stories today, we're going to be speaking about an interview Uh, regarding the forensic architecture's lead Palestine researcher discussing their work and methodology exposing the massacre committed by Zionist militia in the Palestinian village of Tantura 75 years ago on May 22, 1948. It's been speculated that between 100 and 200 bodies may be buried there, and this lead uh, research uh, group is doing some really extraordinary but very painful work about this massacre in Tantura that is 75 years on. And uh, it's an incredible interview, and we're going we're gonna to hear that first. Of course, Jess, we know that the massacre of Tantura, we, we learn about it from numerous testimonies by Palestinian survivors, but also from Israeli perpetrators uh, who documented this massacre and had it in their archive. And now a new evidence of mass graves, gra- graves has been discovered resulting from a year and a half long investigation by forensic architecture. Forensic architecture is a research group at Goldsmiths University of London, and they use uh, highly advanced technology to document human rights violations around the world. Let's watch the interview. The remains of the Palestinian village of Tantura now lie under Dor Beach, an Israeli seaside resort about 20 miles south of Haifa. 75 years ago, on May 22, 1948, Zionist militia occupied this village as part of a year-long campaign of ethnic cleansing of indigenous Palestinians and a destruction of over 500 villages. Numerous testimonies by both Palestinian survivors as well as Israeli perpetrators refer to a massacre that followed Tantura's occupation. New evidence of mass graves has been discovered resulting from a a year-and-a-half-long investigation by Forensic Architecture. Forensic Architecture is a research group at Goldsmiths University of London. 
It uses highly advanced technology to document human rights violations around the world. Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights based in Haifa, commissioned forensic architecture and collaborated on the investigation, has asked the Israeli government to block off the grave site for, fur for further investigation. At the end of May, Palestinian families from Tantura village asked Israeli authorities to, do, to demarcate areas there believed to be mass graves. It is thought that between 100 to 200 bodies may be buried there. Joining us today is Forensics Architecture's lead Palestinian researcher. Welcome to Arab Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So the request by Adala Legal Center for the Israeli government to officially recognize the mass graves as, at Tantura and allow direct investigations of the site is an historical landmark for Palestinians. Explain the significance. The significance is multifold. Um, I think Adala maybe is best to speak about the legal um, parameters of this. Um, but I'll say that it is well known among researchers and students of the conflict that uh, Tantura is not the largest massacre that happened in Palestine. It is one of dozens and dozens of massacres that happened. But it does have a special place in the consciousness of Palestinians, of course, because of film and literature, its coverage in these things, but also of the Israeli public, uh, given the uh, extreme through violent backlash that Teddy Katz was faced when he was simply documenting what people were telling him. And for that reason, using Tantura as a case study, as a way to open up the discussion around the desecration of Palestinian cemeteries, the erasure of Palestinians from history, is very significant. And that is what Adala is doing with this legal case. What's important is that we are talking about a, something that happened 75 years ago, but has been continuing daily. Palestinians are still experiencing massacres during times of war and incursions of entire families. We see this in, in Gaza during the regular incursions and attacks on Gaza. But we are also seeing the daily desecration of Palestinian sacred places, of cemeteries around Jerusalem, around Jaffa, around Nasra. I mean, the list goes on. So the significance of the case is to point to a village that is known across uh, uh, the societies um, that will open things up legally and politically, uh, but that also points to ongoing violations that are happening today. So it will certainly set a precedent. The evidence uncovered by forensic architecture's research made this possible. Talk about the methodology and sophisticated technology and uh, cross-checking used by forensic architecture to substantiate the Tantura grave sites? In many ways, our techniques are not that sophisticated. They're not very high tech. We use simple architectural techniques to investigate state and corporate violence. So this involves things like going to the site, measuring the height of the building, measuring the shadows in images that we have, building a 3D model of the site, what sets our uh, approach apart is the particular way that we cross-reference testimony and visual evidence. So we didn't only build a 3D model. Models and platforms, they are only alive in the virtual world unless people activate them in their real life. We gave texture, a human texture to them by bringing in the testimony of survivors, of still living survivors. Um, and what you realize very quickly is that Tantura is a lived village, that it's not only 
you know, this street or that street. It's the street that I used to go to school, the well where we used to get water. You know, people have specific memories with those stones. And that's what we brought together in this investigation. We listened to people and uh, from there thought about our uh, 3D model, our interactive platform that is still uh, living. We have still testimonies being added to it, materials being added to it. And by listening to people, we were able to find additional sites of mass graves, two very likely and two that we believe are possible only because the testimony and the visual evidence don't align fully. Um, but these were really our techniques. In many ways, you could even call them primitive techniques. But mm. the cross-referencing in this way is what sets our approach apart. Much of uh, forensic architecture's investigative methods do not require direct access uh, to the site in question. So if direct access had been necessary, would it, would it have been possible to reach this point? I mean, our um, forensic architecture's methodologies, which you were talking about, but also, I mean, there is some technology, even though you say it is uh, uh, basically very basic, but it is a game changer. I agree. It's a game changer in that uh, I think for the first time in a very long time, visual evidence is part of um, holding states accountable. I mean, this is something that the director of forensic architecture has pointed to for decades now, that when we don't have access to a site, the people who have access, the first thing that they do is that they whip out their phones. Mm -hmm. right? They become citizen journalists. And, you know, we have tons of images about one incident. You need to organize those images. Otherwise, each image appears to be its own incident, right? So this, um, uh, in in this era of, it's a very visual era, um, these techniques are a game changer. In this project, we are dealing with something that happened 75 years ago. We have still images. We don't have videos. I mean, in another conversation I had, someone said, imagine if we had CCTV footage in front of each people's home in Tantura, right? That would be the real game changer. Here we are looking at aerial images taken by the British and then by the Israeli Air Forces that are still images. We're reading them against what people are saying. We're reading them against village surveys against representation in film, in literature, images, archival images that are taken. Um, these are all uh, almost ancient techniques given the advancement of technology today. I think uh, ancient data given the advancement of technology today. Um, but reading them in this way, having them speak across each other, across fields, is really, um, really the game changer. And in the moments when we have direct access, like as in Tantura, we have direct access to Tantura now. We, we work with the Tantura committee, children of the survivors of Tantura, many of whom live in Fredis. We work with Adala, who is based in historic Palestine. And this is important for us as well, to have local partners, local collaborators who have direct access to the space. We can go and measure the buildings as a result. But in the moments when we don't have access, for example, to Gaza, to Gaza, when Israel is, you know, has blockaded this tiny strip, almost 2 million people living there, mostly refugees, that's when our techniques of using satellite analysis and um, uh, shadow analysis techniques from a distance, right, building a 3D model based on images that we have, they become useful. Um, and so the, 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 the range of the toolkit that we have allows us to decide which techniques and methodologies to activate based on the political realities on the ground. 
What are the next steps uh, in not only verifying the number of bodies in the graves, but also how they were killed? So we were very careful in uh, approaching the question of executions because our mandate was limited to what we can see and what uh, we are able to collect. There were no images of people being explicitly killed, and that's very common. You know, states will not often document that. But what we were able to see were, were steps that were taken before executions took place, according to testimonies from both sides, from all sides. And these are very common steps in other cases of genocide, other cases of massacres and executions, which is you gather everybody in one place systematically, and then you systematically separate men, women, and children. You lead the men in one area and the women and children in the other. Those steps happened, and we have visual evidence for those things, and certainly testimonial evidence. And for that reason, we feel confident to say that there were very likely executions that did take place. We don't have visual evidence of them being shot, but we know the steps that that started ahead of that. Um, for Now, having said that, uh, we, we then needed to understand that the grave sites that we found, well, who were the people in these, in these sites? We have uh, huge numbers in some cases, around 140 as a maximum number for one of the sites, a huge grave site of 33 meters long, mm -hmm. a scar on the earth that shows years after uh, Tantura was uh, occupied and forcefully depopulated. Where did these bodies come from? From all accounts, people are saying that those killed in battle were relatively small numbers. So suddenly you had an influx of bodies that these are also questions that need to be answered. And, and the historian Ilan Pape asked this question very, very um, uh, prudently, namely, where did the bodies come from? And then what happened to the bodies? Where were the bodies buried? We give a range of the number of bodies in these sites based on the dimensions of the grave. And also we found that the range that we gave corresponds to the approximate range that people, uh, the testimonies, uh, said um, that they saw those numbers of bodies approximately being buried or being piled up near the site locationally. Um, so in that sense, we are confident in what we proposed. But the next step is really for the Tantura Committee to decide, the children of the survivors to decide how they want to activate these findings. And the next step is ongoing. It's also Adala who's pushing it in court and wanting to have these sites demarcated. The question of whether to exhume the sites to look for the bones is um, uh, personally, I think, a very problematic one uh, because who, who needs to see the bones to know that an execution occurred? But again, this is a decision that uh, the survivors and the families need to make, and it's an extremely difficult one uh, at that as well. Um, uh, from our side, Tantura taught us a lot. It gave us a set of skills on how to read aerial images, how to read testimonies, and these are skills that we are still developing and that we hope to take to other villages, other uh, areas of Palestine where massacres occurred, um, some even, if I can say, even far worse than Tantura, although we would never hierarchize suffering, um, numbers were much higher and the typology of massacres were, were, were horrific. Um, uh, so this is where we are going with the research next. I guess this investigation is at a point where being on site and excavation are required to give uh, conclusive uh, results. 
the massacres of Tantura have been in the media for a while. It initially made headlines in 1998 when Theodore Teddy Katz wrote his master's thesis about it at Haifa University. What was the response? The response to Katz's uh, uh, thesis? Yes. Well, the response from both the Israeli media and the Israeli, uh, Israeli public and Israeli academia uh, was uh, an extremely uh, violent reaction. Um, Katz was um, penalized heavily in the university. He was slandered across the press. He was put, him and his family were put under extreme pressure. This is all very well documented in in uh, film and in papers written by Katz and others, uh, his, his instructors at the time, including Ilan Pape. Um, it was a very violent reaction to a master's thesis by a master's student who interviewed people from both sides. Um, and like most graduate students, you may make errors in how you cite and how you, how you quote, but the facts of the case were very clear. And in fact, the archival material that Katz looked at, where you have um, uh, uh, messages by the Israeli army referring to a mass grave um, itself, uh, also speak for themselves. Um, but what happened to Katz um, set an example in the Israeli academia. It set an example. It, it created a huge silencing effect. Um, and uh, what we see now is that Katz paid for it dearly um, with his body, with his with his life, which is why um, I'm extremely proud of this investigation because we were able to activate and use the um, incredibly important and fruitful testimonies that Katz had collected, along with the testimonies that others had collected, including people like Hala Gabriel and Arab Lutfi, um, filmmakers, Palestinian and Egyptian filmmakers who interviewed survivors. Um, and also to you know to honor that effort that that Katz and others had made in collecting these precious testimonies. Today, now that uh, you know, twenty years later, almost after um, uh, Alon Schwartz's film also came out, what we see is a is a major turn. Both the Israeli press, the same papers that condemned Katz, were speaking highly of Alon's film. Uh, the same uh, universities that chastised him and expelled him and pushed him to sign a forced, uh, um, for, for him, uh, a, 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 an apology under duress, um, were um, taking a more uh, softer approach to him. So there are things that have changed over time. What has not changed is a lack of accountability. That still remains. We have... We still do not have the state of Israel admitting to massacres having taken place, admitting to these sites. There's no conversation around um, reparations to refugees, the right of return. These are all things that need to come back um, with this investigation, showing very much the present day urgency to address these uh, issues across the spectrum. Then, uh, you know, picking up on this in January 2022, Adam Raz of the Akivot Institute uh, for Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Research, wrote an article in Haaretz with the testimonies of Israeli veterans who corroborated and recounted participating in the massacre. How important was this, and was it instrumental in initiating the investigation? I mean, this was important for 
I think, large members of the Israeli public to have former Israeli soldiers speak to it. For Palestinians, these are things that they already knew. They don't need Israeli soldiers to tell them things that they already know. Although, of course, it is significant um, when you're the survivor of such a violence to have the perpetrator admit to having done it. it it's, um, it's important to be seen uh, when you're the survivor of such traumas. But for Palestinians, they were aware of these massacres. They did not need even someone like Katz to document it. It was, it was well known, documented in literature and in film. Um, uh, and it was enough that Palestinians say that it exists. They don't need Israeli soldiers to say that it exists. Um, the reason why we uh, took on this investigation um, is because, firstly, we wanted to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. Um, we know that the significance of Tantura in the consciousness of both Israelis and Palestinians, um, the release of Alon Schwartz's film brought Tantura back to the forefront. The film had in it a claim of the bodies having been removed. And for that reason, and among others, Adala approached us asking us to look into the visual evidence. So all of these things together um, led to um, the relevance of the of the investigation while the project something that happened 75 years ago and continues to happen is still relevant today and to the urgency of the yeah. project that was actually my next question is why was Tantura chosen as the village to investigate but you explained that well uh, it's important to mention that this was documented in Israel's military and you started talking about this uh, in Israel's military archives as well one example is the regional commander writing to a subordinate on May 29, 1948. And he says, take care to bury the bodies of the Arabs in Tantura and prevent a plague. And you also mentioned Ilan Pape. Ilan Pape sourced Israeli archives extensively in his book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Is the classified Israeli doc uh, governmental material important to make your case? Um, for us, we didn't rely on the on um, those archival uh, materials as much as we did testimony and visual evidence. Um, so images, videos of testimonies, uh, maps, village surveys, aerial images, satellite images. But of course, we brought in that archival evidence to corroborate the testimony and the visual evidence to corroborate why we um, use the language of mass graves, why we use the language of executions. Um, as a, a forensic expert opinion, that, which is what we're giving. The archives are significant because in the end, we are talking about colonial archives, whether they're the archives in Geneva, the League of Nations archives, or the UN archives, or the National Archives in London, or the Israeli State Archives, or Central Zionist archives in Jerusalem. These are colonial archives, and access to these archives, including the Israeli military archives, is extremely restricted, um, aerial images are not easy to come by. You have to jump through a number of loops. You need a number of uh, documents. And this is part uh, of the way that settler colonial societies, not only Israel, but also uh, other uh, uh, societies, including the UK and Canada and America, control um, discourse and control um, the uh, ability of colonized peoples to hold their historical injustices to account. Um, so I think what our techniques allow us to do is to investigate state violence, even in the moment when the state withholds evidence. Right? These are the ways that we're able to get around it. Um, and in many of our other cases, we have in fact pushed the state 
to give up evidence after having done our investigation. We have pushed them to show video uh, after our investigation points to holes in their official claims. And I think that's, that's also the power of these types of techniques. When someone commissions a forensic architecture, what are the criteria for its accepting to conduct an investigation? Uh, I can only speak for the projects we do in Palestine because those are the projects that I um, mostly oversee. Um, but uh, for the most part, um, our mandate is to also to come up with new techniques, new methods of investigation. So we look at what are the techniques that we know, what new techniques can we uh, build in the investigation that is coming. It's very important that we have local collaborators, often the families of the person or persons who have been killed, murdered, assassinated, approach us. So it's important to have consent and um, uh, access to the ground, access to the site, access to a, a human texture and not be simply forensic experts speaking from a distance. There needs also to be an urgency in answering this question. You know, multiple people are killed regularly in settler colonial contexts such as Palestine, um, and we simply don't have the resources to take on each of these cases. And so we ask, if we take on this case, how can we take on the case of a single person but speak to a broader pattern that is happening. So this person is not an incident that is happening out of the blue or accidentally. It's part of a pattern, a systematic pattern of killing young men or of killing children or of killing families. Um, so these are the things that we consider for the most part. What is the visual evidence? What is the access we have? Who can we work with? Is there an urgency? What techniques uh, are put in place? Um, and often we find that there is a void that we can um, fill uh, in a way that hasn't been done in the past. And increasingly, I will say, we're also sharing our skill sets with other organizations who are um, taking this on. So you already have the New York Times and the Washington Post coming up with investigative, visual investigations units. Um, we have built a forensic architecture unit with Al-Haq in their offices in Ramallah. And this, this is a Palestinian-led unit using forensic architecture's techniques in the service of the Palestinian liberation movement and of Al-Haq's mandate. And that's also important so that it's not only uh, forensic architecture in London that is doing this, it's the communities themselves taking this on. What happened in Tantura is not an isolated incident, as you mentioned, in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But do you see it, um, and do you see Tantura as a precedent for other Palestinian villages? I guess what I want to I ask do you, do you see this as a precedent to uncover more massacres? Because, as you know, the uh, Zionist narrative first denial saying that massacres never happened, and now we're, you're providing evidence, and then that this might lead to even more horrific incidents that we don't even know about. Our evidence provides um, the location and the dimension of sites that we believe very strongly are sites of mass graves. And then the question is, well, mass graves of whom? Who is buried there and how? Why were they killed? How were they killed? Right? Those are the questions that come out with that are for historians and researchers and lawyers and survivors to push forward. Um, Tantura certainly, in my mind, is precedent setting for us and also in the minds of my colleagues. Um, it taught us, as I said, a lot of techniques that we hope to take elsewhere. Um, and the significance of Tantura, again, is not that it was the worst massacre, if I can even say it like this, um, any massacre is the worst massacre. Um, uh, but it 
in that it um, sets the stage for how we approach these types of questions. Um, uh, what we know is that what happened in Tantura was a, was a response also to what the um, Alexandroni Brigade learned in other villages, right? There were other massacres before Tantura that have been very well documented by historians like Salman Abusetta, who has an entire dictionary of villages that have been massacred, their typology, the number killed, has a collection of testimonies, have, has even has many of these villages already modeled in 3D. Um, so we know that they happen, but what we don't know are specific um, details. The kind of uh, granular approach that we took to Tantura hasn't been done in each of these villages. What are these sites? Who can speak to them? How do these testimonies intersect with the visual evidence? Um, what is the dimension? How many bodies? Where are the survivors? What happened in, in say, Aldoeima, which is the next village that I'm hoping to be able to look at carefully, um, and that uh, you know was learned in the cases before. Uh, and the moment you do that, you realize that, again, these are not isolated incidents. These are systematic and widespread, which means that they're part of a broader campaign. Um, massacres also, I think it's important to say, are part and parcel in producing the Palestinian refugee crisis. People fled because they heard of massacres in other villages, and they were terrified of it, of course, coming to their villages. So when we're talking about massacres, we're talking about mass graves and executions, we're also talking about the production of a refugee uh, exodus. And in doing so, we're also talking about the right of return. Are you experiencing strong pushback and denial by Zionist uh, protectionists? Are civil and governmental organizations aligning themselves with forensic architecture and adala to allow access to the Tantura graves? So far, we haven't arrived there yet. We just launched the investigation and we're, um, we're waiting to understand how the State of Israel responds to Adala's letter, which is the first step for us. This is also a case that we're hoping to take to international courts to present the techniques, because again, the topic of mass graves, for example, has become very present in the case of Canada with residential schools and the mass grave of indigenous peoples that are discovered there. So to put Palestine in conversation with other indigenous populations that experience massacres and that still have living mass graves uh, on their lands. Um, the I think an achievement of this project is that we were dealing with very different types of stakeholders, Palestinian historians and Israeli ones, filmmakers, who with different, very different agendas, very different audiences, who won't even speak to each other, researchers who won't be in the same room. And all of them were able to meet with us, share their materials with us very generously, thankfully, and um, have also been extremely uh, supportive and responded positively to our findings. And that is not an easy thing to accomplish. It takes a lot of coordination, a lot of um, and, and making sure that people's, people are heard, that people are included. Um, and uh, I think it's part of the strength of this investigation. What we are saying, uh, I hope by now, is not very controversial. It's something that people have already known. We are, we are uh, uh, giving the visual evidence to support uh, what people have already pointed to for 75 years. Forensic architecture and Adela say they hope the Tantura project is the beginning of wider research into other Palestinian massacres from the same era. What methods will be particularly useful in doing this? Significantly, um, looking at aerial images is 
is key. Um, having an aerial image from before and after the depopulation of the village is what allows us to make that comparison. I can't look at the after if I don't know what the before was. Um, and just as important, having access to people, people who saw, people who remember, people whose testimony was recorded is significant. If I have a village where I have all the archival material in the world, but I don't have a single person whose testimony is collected, I can't do anything because I don't know where to look, right? Um, our director says that we were um, looking with our ears um, or you know, listening with our eyes. And that's really what we were doing. We were, we, it was oral history led. And the moments where we were able to put our finger on the map and make an intervention when we, when we saw what other people were saying. Um, so these are the things that are vital. I need to have visual material and I need to have access to survivors. I want to thank you for coming on Arab Talk to speak about forensic architecture's impressive methodology and commitment to document and establish reliable evidence of human rights uh, abuses. And, and we hope uh, we'll bring you back on the show to give us uh, another update. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, that's a representative from the Forensic Architectures Lead Palestine uh, Research Group investigating the massacre in Tantura 75 years ago on May 22, 1948. Uh, I'd have to say, Jamal, not only uh, kind of a revealing uh, interview and research that they're doing in Tantura, but deeply disturbing. It looks like there's between 100 and 200 bodies uh, that were buried there. This has been a mass cover-up by the apartheid regime. Um, this massacre was extraordinary. It's, in my opinion, a war crime. And now we're finding that there is evidence uh, of this mass uh, mass murder. There's no other way to describe it. Of course, this is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you had 500-plus Palestinian villages uh, that were ethnically cleansed uh, between the period of 1947-1948. And this is uh, one of the better known, I would say, massacres. There, there are, we talked about it actually two shows ago. Right. On the number of massacres and ethnic and the the systematic ethnic cleansing uh, of Palestinians. Right. But what's different about this one, Jamal, is that this is a forensic research group that's attempting to document it from a scientific perspective, the evidence that can be used, you know, because it's forensic, it can be used in a legal setting. And my hope, and I think the hope of all the survivors from Tantura and the survivors of the ethnic cleansing in Palestine, you know, want this evidence to be presented at, a, at an international tribunal or world court so that the perpetrators of this uh, of this massacre can be held accountable. You're absolutely right. Moving on to our uh, other big story, Jess, and my it, question... It's a huge story. My question to you, can a president, an indicted president, or an indicted, I'm sorry, an indicted former president run from jail for <laughs> election? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think well, it will get to that point because... Well, I don't uh, know, Jamal. With appeals and how the court system moves, I don't think that this is going to happen before November uh, 2024. But let's let's just take this scenario and, and see if there is any anything that will stop a, uh, 
an indicted and convicted president from running the country. Well, well let's let, let's let, let's be really clear about this, Jamal. Uh, Donald Trump has been indicted on thirty-seven counts, uh, thirty-seven felony accounts of basically taking, you know, under the Espionage Act, of taking uh, documents uh, that he shouldn't have taken. Uh, from the White House that were, you know, top secret at the highest level of the security clearance in, in the United States with deep international and, and national, you know, security implications, very, very significant documents. He lied about taking them, and then he obstructed the investigation to look into the fact that he took them and what happened. The, these are various serious allegations. He's been indicted. Um, we have to assume, you know, because of the system of justice that we have in this country, that he's innocent until proven guilty. But I actually read through the indictment, Jamal, and um, it's an extraordinary indictment. I, I, the the evidence that's presented by the uh, special prosecutor uh, Jack Smith is extraordinarily detailed. He, they have recordings of Donald Trump basically caught red-handed. Um, they have videotapes. It's it's very compelling. But to answer your question directly, you have two scenarios. Can someone who's arrested, convicted, and in jail run for president? Uh, the answer is yes. Here's the other question. Can someone who's elected president, let's say it is Donald Trump, uh, be uh, arrested while he's in the White House? Because that's another scenario, right? Be that as it may, Here's the scenario, Jamal. He's still the front runner for Republicans. And I know you don't like me to say this because I've been proven right on this, unfortunately. There is a very high likelihood that he will be the Republican nominee, irrespective of this indictment. You're absolutely correct. Trump is not legally prohibited from running for president from prison or as a convicted felon. I looked into this and I read about it and, and, and actually I was surprised that there is nothing prohibiting him from running from from prison if it gets to that point. But of course, this would create a mass, massive stress test uh, for the country's uh, political and legal system. But uh, just to add on to something you said, if he makes it to the White House while he's under indictment but not convicted, then he'll pardon himself, exactly. right? Exactly. Then, then, then he has the power, the executive power, to pardon himself. And he was asked this question. I was watching right. an interview and he sidestepped uh, the possibility that he would pardon himself should he win the presidency in 2024. And he just shifted, uh, you know, uh, you know, shifty Trump the way he is. He just uh, started talking about something else, which <laughs> which kind of is an indicator that, that this right. is in the back of his mind. Well, let me let me make it to the White House, and then right. I'll, I'll clear my name because I would I will pardon myself. Yeah, but 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 here's the other thing: these are federal charges uh, on the obstruction of justice and elite and the espionage. Act, doesn't right? matter. It doesn't matter. He can no, he can pardon himself. No, he. Can, but but what I was going to say is that in New York and in Georgia, these are state and non-federal. Uh, charges in New York, there are non-federal charges that are being brought against him, and in Georgia, there will be state charges also being brought against him, most likely. 
And he is, he cannot pardon himself. He cannot be pardoned for state crimes. He can only be pardoned for federal crimes. Right. So irrespective of what happens in this situation, Jamal, uh, the, the former president is in a deep world of hurt. Uh, there's every expectation. I mean, Jack Smith as a prosecutor is uh, rock solid. He worked in The Hague. He's prosecuted war criminals before. He's, you know, down the line by the book. And, um, you know, there's, even if this is appealed and goes from, you know, one court to another and even eventually makes its way to the Supreme Court, I think there's a good chance that Donald Trump will not only be, not only is indicted, but will be found guilty of many of these uh, acts, uh, felonious acts that he's been uh, charged with. It's, It's a world of hurt, but I still remain optimistic that he will become the the presidential nominee of the Republican Party. What's so optimistic about this, Jess? Well, I'm optimistic about it because I know how um, I have to find the right words here. How how not only polarized this country is, but if you look at the polling now, even after the indictments uh, were read, the support, even among the other presidential candidates in the Republican Party, except for maybe one or two who are a little cautious in criticizing him, the majority of people have come out swinging, uh, supporting Donald Trump uh, in breaking the rule of law. So uh, when I say optimistic, I, I, I'm not saying that that it's a positive thing. I'm saying I'm optimistic about my predictions, which have been right, unfortunately, for the last six years that uh, he will most likely become the nominee, even with these indictments. In fact, Jamal, it's even worse. His poll numbers are better. After and, his, and, 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 and he's getting more money, more donations, pouring more into donations, his campaign. More attention. His closest uh, competitor is Ron DeSantis, who is you know double digits behind him in all the polling. Uh, I just don't see how it's possible that any of these candidates will will unseat uh, Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee of the GOP. So we need to get our seatbelts on Jamal because this is unprecedented, you know, in the uh, in our system of justice here in the United States. I think you're exactly right. It's a stress test. Um, I'm not convinced we can pass this stress test because there was an article written just this morning from the New York Times um, by some top-notch reporters who basically say that the intelligence services in the United States are picking up chatter in the social media that is um, very threatening and that the possibility of violence being committed by Trump supporters as a result of these indictments is getting even larger. But so, his, speech, his speech yesterday was basically, from what I saw, was revving up his base support, getting them worked up, you know, about that he won the elections and back again to the fraud and he was cheated and and this is a witch aunt and and so forth. I mean, I mean, if you if you think about if if you analyze all the words and statements he made, I mean, this could be a precedent really for getting basically the masses behind him that might turn into violent behavior. But Jamal, let's not forget about January 6th. He he fomented and called for 
and essentially advocated advocated for violence against the U.S. Capitol on and, January and, and 6th. He, and he did only a few hours to do that. But now we're talking about, we're speaking now in June of 2023 and November 2024 is far away. And the, the more of this, this kind of rhetoric, let's say, if he, if he, if he ups the ante, he will. Uh, it, it's, it's a cause for concern. I'm concerned about it. I mean, I read some of these social media posts. I read what some congressmen said uh, in defense of Donald Trump and that people are, I mean, the, the, the Carrie Lake Jamal, who was the uh, running for governor in Arizona who lost and, you know, is a Trump acolyte, uh, basically said at a speech, you know, you're playing, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it's true, that the prosecution and the U.S. government is playing with fire. She said, "We are all NRA members, and she better, and we, you know, they better look out." Well, that's not even thinly that's veiled. That's a threat to me. That's a well, veiled threat. That's I don't think it's that veiled, Jamal. When you say you're an NRA member, that means you have a gun. Yeah. And if you have a gun, she's saying you better look out. Well, that's not a veiled threat. That's in, in my mind, that's all that's like akin to a direct threat. Like you're going to come after us. We have guns. Well, that's yeah. very disturbing. Yeah. And that's coming from Kerry Lake. Well, here's another uh, concern that I don't see uh, debated uh, on media. Now, these classified documents that Trump kept at uh, Mar-a-Lago included details about the U.S. military, including the U.S. nuclear uh, program. And, right. and, and, and we know like Trump likes, okay, to brag. I mean, some people said, well, he got them because these are like trophy. But um, who had access to these? Did Jared Kushner, for example, <laughs> had access to this? Of course he did. Someone, someone who made, he and his uh, wife with the, made uh, $2 billion deals you know, because of his closeness to the president. That's a big question because it's not just it's like he took, it's not like he took these classified documents, but who had access? I mean, well, that's exactly, but Jamal, and where, where did this information go to? Russia, China, Israel? I don't know where. Well, I think that's a really good point, Jamal, and that's part of why this indictment is so damning on Donald Trump, because part of the speculation is that he took these documents, not just to brag about it, which is part of his personality, undoubtedly, but his attempt to monetize and take this information and share it with, you know, whomever. Is it Putin? Is it MBS? I mean, the one document that is at, at the center of this is a plan that the U.S. military uh, developed to basically attack and undermine the Iranian nuclear uh, uh, program. Well, what countries would be interested in that? Uh, Putin, uh, the apartheid regime, the Israelis would be interested in that. They've, they've spied, they've spied, you know, right? in, case, in, case, in case we had forgotten, uh, Jonathan right. Pollard, that's all what I have to right. say. That's right. So my my. Of course, there was a narcissistic element to him bragging about this. But at the same time, it's part of his mentality, Trump's mentality, to monetize, to, to have financial gain from having access to this information. One, one last thing I'll say about this is that Trump is also facing an indictment in New York stemming from allegations that he concealed hush money payments to poor actress, to porn actress Stormy Daniels. That's another thing. He is also under investigation in Georgia over his efforts 
to pressure officials to overturn the state 2020 vote count. He can't. And that's, that's also being can't, in, investigated. Right, and, and you can't. He can't pardon himself for that. Sorry, Donald. Moving on to our uh, final story, Jess, is in the 60-page document that uh, we've read. The Biden administration referred to the IHRA definition, which is named after the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, as the most prominent of several definitions of anti-Semitism and one the administration has braced. However, because you mentioned... They, they uh, emphasize that it has no legal value and does not supersede existing laws, meaning constitutional laws, or constitute binding guidance for public agencies and local government. Do you believe in that no. this is going to have no. any factor once the president says one thing, says, Oh no, we we this is the most important reference, which is the IHRA definition of uh, anti-Semitism. However, you know, it does not supersede the constitution. Meanwhile, we know that 31 states and dozens of counties and municipalities have embraced it in resolutions. Well, that's such a great point, Jamal, and this is part of the pickle and the dilemma that Biden has got himself in yet again, because you know you have the the kind of uh, Democratic congressmen and women, the majority of which who kind of lean towards the progressive side, who absolutely reject the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So his main base on the Democratic side rejects this definition. Yet on the on the Republican and the extreme right side, they embrace this definition. So he's doing a typical Joe Biden thing. He's going to say, oh, what a great document, but it doesn't have any legal significance for what we're going to do. He's trying to appease both groups. So is he, is he speaking from both sides of his mouth? What a surprise, right? My, my concern about this is that it legitimizes the attacks on uh, free speech uh, it legitimizes attacks on pro-Palestine, pro-democracy, pro-self-determination uh, speech that is being vilified and attacked in the academy and in the public square. We've been we talked about, you know, the uh, commencement address at uh, Cooney Law School uh, by Miss Muhammad, where she continues. You know, one month on now, Jamal, she continues to be viciously attacked. And Just by the way, they're they're calling for. Uh, or lobbying that the New York bar won't admit her. Imagine, imagine right. you know, going right. after a young student who dedicated her life to and, justice, to justice, and now saying, you know, they they want to dis- they want to cancel her, they want to destroy her career. Well, well, and they wanna they want to cancel funding or take away funding from uh, you know Cooney and and from the law school. And the thing is, Jamal, they're using the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism to attack people. And when you conflate anti-Semitism, which is real and of concern, as we've talked about on this show for years, but if you conflate that with legitimate uh, uh, criticism of an apartheid state, when you conflate those two, you're going to run into problems. And the Biden administration is going to continue to have these problems. And uh, as I said, it legitimizes the attacks on free speech in the academy and in the public square, where we have 
everybody has the legitimate right to criticize an apartheid state. So I think this is going to lead to more problems, not less. No, it, absolutely right. And it's happening in Europe. There was a report last right. week published by the European Legal Support Center, which is a group fighting legal attacks on groups and individuals uh, uh, advocating for Palestinian rights in Europe. And, and they basically conclude that everything that has been done now so far to silence critics of Israel is a violation of human rights and freedom of, of, of speech. And legal scholars in the U.S., I mean, decent, what I, when I use the word decent legal scholars, ones, the ones, not the Dorshowitz type of scholars <laughs> that who want to twist and, um, you know, bend the law here and there, they basically condemn condemn it, and they're against it, including its original author, because it conflates the two concepts of anti-Zionism versus anti-Semitism, and it threatens academic freedom and free speech, and uh, its whole purpose is to silence criticism of Israel. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. I think, as I said, this is going to come back to haunt the Biden administration, because it will alienate the progressive and uh, justice-oriented Democrats who have legitimate concerns about supporting an apartheid state, about supporting the, you know, and we, we didn't even have time to talk about this, but one of the things that's happening is the legitimization of the annexation of, uh, of pal more Palestinian territory uh, in the West Bank. I mean, this is going full steam ahead by the Netanyahu uh, administration. And despite, you know, Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken saying, oh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, we, we don't like this. It's contrary to, it's not helpful. All this kind of double speak and BS coming from the State Department. What's really happening on the ground is that more land is being stolen and annexed by an apartheid state. And we're fighting about a definition. It's, it's truly outrageous. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll speak to you next week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.